Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. This morning we're going to be uh, continuing in a series we started last week. So this is kind of our new year, new launch series. Um, and we began it last week. And the title of the series is Running with horses, right? A little bit of a head scratcher. What does that have to do with anything? Uh, so if, if you weren't with us last week, you're already behind. You can catch up uh, by listening to that message or checking out the things online. But the, the, the title of the series comes really from a verse in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5, where God uh, really posits a response to Jeremiah that loosely translated would be this, If you don't learn how to endure small difficulties in life, you will never endure the bigger things that you'll end up having to face. And so this idea of running with horses, it really comes out of Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5, where when God's response to Jeremiah, who was praying, basically, God, change my circumstances because these stink, he responded with, if you have raced with men on foot and have been worn out or, or you grow weary, if you can't endure just a foot race with with, with men, how can you compete with horses? And really what the Lord was saying is, if I just change small difficulties in your life it's for you to be super comfortable, how are you going to deal with bigger things that most certainly are going to come? And so this running with horses, really what we're looking at is, how do I live my best life when life isn't at its best. Many of us are waiting for life to get good, and then we're going to be at our best. But how, how do I, first of all, I'm still waiting for that, right? How do I live my best life when life isn't at its best? And we started with last week, it, it requires a couple of things. One is we have to reframe the way that we look at difficulties, and that was the focus of last week. Uh, rather than uh, trying to somehow uh, evade difficult or pain points in our lives or just kind of petitioning God to just kind of make things better, uh, how do we walk through those with the Good Shepherd in a way that we uh, grow and mature into being able to endure and to persevere into the fullness of God's promises for us? But the second thing that we've got to do is not just have a different frame or a different lens for looking at difficulties. We actually have to define what is your best life. Right? You need to know how to know if you're kind of winning at that. Um, uh, we got a, a new gift this Christmas. Um, some friends of ours got us a game for the whole family to play. And I don't know if you've heard of this game or if you've played it before, but it's a really unique sounding game. It's called Quirkle. Quirkle? Yeah, I was like, I don't... There's no context for that word. I, don't, I feel like they just made it up. We're at the point in time now where like, people are just like grabbing letters, putting them in together, and just like put that on a box. People will buy it. They don't, it doesn't matter. So anyway, we got this game called Quirkle, and it's kind of like Scrabble, where you get a, a number of wooden tiles, but there's no letters. So those of you who are like, Scrabble's just a deconstructed book, and I don't have time for that. Like, it's not Scrabble. It's like Scrabble and then like rummy cube mushed together. And there's this idea that you've got these tiles that have different colors and shapes on them, and you gotta play them down in certain patterns or uh, uh, line sequences in order to amass points. Are you confused yet? 
Yeah, so was I when I sat down to play this game. And, and it's not just, the point isn't to just get the tiles out, right? It's not to be the first one out. It's not to get the most tiles out at one turn. There's a strategy involved in, in how to put them out on the, on, on the table in sequences where points are being tallied and counting. And it's, uh, it takes a little bit to figure out. And really, like at the beginning of it, you're just like, I don't know what to do. You're putting out colors and shapes, and you're just kind of hoping for the best. And we were playing with friends who, friends who give you a gift that's a game already know how to play the game. I'm just going to let you know that, right? It's like, oh, hey, this is fun. And you're like, oh, it's going to be fun. And they're like, we're going to just beat them down. And that's how this, you know, you're learning through the beat down on, on, on the game. But it, it took a while to figure this out. How do I know if I'm winning? Right? Like, how, how do I know if I'm winning? And when we come back to this idea of living your best life when life isn't at its best, we have to be able to answer that question. Like, how, like how do I know if I'm winning at life? How do I know if I'm living my best life? What does living your best life look like? I want you to think about that for a moment. Right? So on your social media page, you might put a picture up, hashtag living my best life. Right? Moms, you might be hiding in a closet with your own pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Nobody knows where you are. You don't have to share. You don't have to answer any questions. You don't have to deal with your, your, uh, you know, your husband's cold, his man cold that he can't handle on his own. Like, like you don't, it's just, oh. Like, is that your best life? Like dads, maybe you're hiding in the garage, puttering on a project that you could have completed two hours ago, but if it was completed, you'd have to be in the house doing something else. And so you see, keep taking apart the same thing and putting it back together. Ooh, I don't know. This is complicated. Like I just, I, it's going to be another couple hours. And you're just out there, the ball game's on on the radio, and you're just living your best life, right? Uh, young, young people, maybe you're out and you're expend, experiencing a little bit more independence. You're being able to get... Uh, make your own decisions. Maybe you just got your driver's license and you're just like, you know, I'll run errands, I'll run errands. You guys remember that? Like, it doesn't last very long, parents, so take advantage of it. But the, the I run, I'll run any and every errand at any moment. Like, there's a poor, it's just, I'm trying to live my best life. How, how do you answer that? How do you, what does it look like to live your best life? I'm going to really kind of cut to the end and just give you a little life secret. Your best life is lived in Jesus. Like your, your best life, okay, what does it look like to live my best life? Jesus is going to be a central part of that. We're going to get to that this morning, but we have to redefine what it means to live our best life because we have a tendency to misunderstand that. We misunderstand what abundant life or uh, a full life is supposed to be. Many of us have grown up maybe in the church and you've heard this idea that Jesus has come to give us life and that we would have it to the full or that we would have overflowing uh, or, or long-lasting or everlasting life. And when we start to think about that, a lot of times the lens that we view it through is the lens of kind of the world and our experiences. Sometimes we think that uh, uh, having a full life means that I'm comfortable right, that I have a comfortable life. That's an actually easy paradigm for us to have because you and I live very, very comfortably comparatively to the rest of the world. But then if you did a comparison between how just the, 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 the timeline of human history that we live in versus any other time in human history, we are relatively comfortable. 
to the fact that we can push a button, right, and the thermostat changes in our home. And in fact, we live in a time right now, you don't even have to set your thermostat. I'm going to give you a secret. You can actually download an app on your phone, and you can tell Siri to turn up the thermostat. And then you know that if somebody messed with the thermostat, it was Siri, and you could be like, don't touch the thermostat, right? We're not trying to heat the whole neighborhood. Dads, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe living your best life through kind of a, a, a worldly lens means like my life, it's problem free. Like I don't have problems or difficulties. Last week would have helped you maybe work through that misnomer. Sometimes we think living our best life means that I've got stability, right? Like I just, I've got a stable job and I've got a stable income. It means my finances are in order or I'm achieving my goals or my dreams. Sometimes we think of it relationally, right? That if I was living my best life that I have found the one as if the whole focus of my life is just finding that one person who's going to endure life with me. Like, we, we can have a lesser view of what it means to have our best life. We incorrectly perceive at times we're winning when we're not, and there's times where we are going through a difficult time in life, and we will assume that we were losing, quote-unquote, at life when that is not the case either. Your best life is going to be lived in Jesus. If you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you to go ahead and get that out. If you've got a smartphone or a tablet, go ahead and get that out. Open up your Bible app. Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts to hear from your word today. Lord, give us eyes to see. Lord, some of our lenses need to change. The way that we have looked at our lives and assessed it, Lord, have been incorrect because we've been looking through the wrong framework. We've been looking through the wrong system of values Lord, correct our vision today, that we would see what it means to live a full life in Christ, and that we would begin to take steps to experience that in Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to this idea of living a full life or living your best life, that would be more of a colloquial, like present-day hashtag for that type of idea, but the idea of, of living a life that is full of vitality um, that concept is really a dominant metaphor in Scripture. Like a lot, of, a, a lot of the Bible focuses on this idea of how do you live real life? What does true life look like? And how is that something that we discover in connection to the Lord? There, there are dominant metaphors in Scripture that are used to describe what it means to truly have life, and two of them are, are really central themes, and we're going to see in Jeremiah as we unpack a couple texts this morning that they're central there, but these are dominant central themes and metaphors that are used from the front to the back of what it means to truly have life, and one is encompassed in the concept of wholeness. If you're a note taker, these two things you need to write down, leave some bucket space to hang some ideas on as we go through this morning, but one of the concepts of what does it mean to really have life, to really be alive, one of the central metaphors and focuses in Scripture is the idea of wholeness, wholeness. And the other is understood as fruitfulness, wholeness and fruitfulness. And they're going to be things that are connected, okay? They're connected, but they're not necessarily the same thing. And both of those metaphors that are used to describe what it means to have a life, 
Both of those we find in the book of Jeremiah as well. In Jeremiah, we talked a little bit last week that the, 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 the background of the book is Jeremiah is a prophet to the nation of Judah in really a, a, a really poor season of their national history. They're in spiritual and moral decline, and they're heading for disaster. And as much as he would speak and warn and petition them to choose a, 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 a different direction, they keep careening towards this inevitable disaster. And it's in the middle of that that we find him pleading with God, change the circumstances, and God says, I'm not going to. In fact, it's going to be even worse, and you're going to have to grow and mature in order to endure and to persevere. So we talked a little bit about reframing the way that we understand difficulty last week. But the way, the way that he endures is really, really important. He begins to experience the fullness of life, even though life is not at its full. He begins to experience what it means to have real life, even though life isn't at its best. And both of these ideas, this idea of wholeness and this idea of fruitfulness, are central in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. We're going to look at a couple verses here together. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and get there. If you're joining with me here and you don't have it, it's going to be up on the screen. Those of you at home, it will be on the screen for you as well. And Jeremiah basically makes a declaration of faith and a declared truth of who God is and what he does. So in the midst of difficulty that's not going away, in the midst of difficulty that he's going to have to endure, he begins to make declarative, uh, declarative statements about who God is and what God does. Because he's already asked God to change it, and God has said, I'm not going to change it. So then he begins to respond in a different way. And in verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 17, he says this. He says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. You are the hope of Israel. And this comes in a context in Jeremiah chapter 17 where what God is doing is God is actually showing the nation that they have gone into the wrong direction, that they're actually not putting their hope in him, that they're going through kind of some religious outward expression, but in their hearts and in the motivation of their souls and in the direction of their spiritual and moral leanings, they are, are moving further and further and further away from God that they're careening towards disaster, but Jeremiah makes this, you, you are hope. God, there is no other hope but you. There's only one place to find this. You are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. All who hope in something else are going to find that hope disappointed. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. This is a, a picture of like writing your name in the dirt and the wind blowing and it's gone. It's, 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 uh, it doesn't last. When we turn away from the Lord, it's as if whatever we're doing is scribbled in the dust until the wind blows and it's as if it was erased, it never happened. All of our efforts are fruitless in that place because they have forsaken the Lord the spring of living water. So Jeremiah, he makes this declaration, hey, my hope can only be in you, and you are the source of life. You are the spring of living water. In fact, this is the same type of language that Jesus uses in the book of John. 
when he says that the, the Holy Spirit is going to well up and flow out of you as springs of living water. We referenced that in a sermon series several months ago as we focused on that type of an idea. It's the same type of language, and Jesus is actually taking this and bringing it into that conversation that he had. And then verse 14 is so important because Jeremiah begins to declare something. He says this, he says, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. And what's re- really interesting here is there's, there's two statements that are being made. One is heal me, and the, the word here in the Hebrew is rapha. It's an interesting word, and if you are a student of the Old Testament, you would know it's actually a word that God uses as one of his proper names. He is known in Scripture as Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals And not just the God who acts healing, but the God who holds it as reservoir in his character in person. It's a proper name that is ascribed to who God is. And Jeremiah is borrowing on that. And he's like, you are the one who heals. If you heal me, I will be healed. And the word, it doesn't just mean like, okay, you've got an owie or a boo-boo and like now it feels better. Like the word at its core means to be made whole to be made whole. See, God is the one who can bring wholeness to the brokenness in your life. He can make your heart whole. He can make your mind whole. He can heal your emotions, your relationships, your perspective of self, your understood identity, all of those places in us where we feel broken and fractured. In fact, that idea of being made whole, it's a central focus of even what Jesus was speaking about as he instituted communion. As he said, this is my body broken for you. The picture there is that because of his brokenness, he can bring wholeness. It's the whole reversal of death on the cross, but resurrected life out of the tomb. Heal me and I will be healed. And more than that, God, you are the place where I find wholeness. The second thing, save me and I will be saved, right? The, the word using, used there uh, has a lot to do with being set free. It, it's, it's a freedom and a release, uh, not just to like a rescue out of, right? Like save me from drowning in a sense. Like it's not necessarily just pulling you out of something difficult. It's releasing you from a place that you've been bound or held captive, is more of the word. And those two ideas, that idea of wholeness uh, or being made whole, and this idea of release and freedom are the two central aspects of what we understand salvation to be. So you jump out of this and you go to the New Testament, which many of us are much more familiar with, and you start looking at who Jesus is and what he does, and you start talking about uh, him as our Lord and Savior, right? Even stuff like that. Maybe you've had somebody who's tried to have the Jesus conversation with you, and it's like, is Jesus your Savior? You know, is Jesus the Lord and Savior of your heart? Maybe you had somebody knock on the door and want to talk to you about that at different times. But this idea of being saved uh, in, in in the New Testament, the Greek word is related to these two concepts. And the noun of it, when you'd say salvation as a noun, it leans heavily on this idea of release and freedom. But when you look at the verb in the Greek, to save, to be saved, 
it leans much more into the idea of being made whole. Much more into this idea of being made whole. The concept of salvation in the New Testament takes these two ideas, that you would be made whole and released from bondage in any and every aspect and degree of your life experience. In your relationships, in your personhood, in your identity, in the way that you understand the way that you would relate to God, in in all of those things and so much more. That's what salvation ends up being tied to. And so this idea of kind of everlasting life, abundant life, even that idea of kind of eternal life, it's tied to this concept of salvation. The Greek word for the active of to save is sozo. It means to, to, to act or exact in a way that produces wholeness and health. Nothing missing and nothing broken. That's what your best life looks like. Your best life looks like that type of wholeness. That type of wholeness. In John chapter 10, verse 10, scripture that we reference all the time as a church body, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So it's a central statement that Jesus makes. I, I have come so that you would have life. And your Bible translation may say, and to have it to the full, or to have it uh, abundantly or overflowing. The message translation of that passage says this, I have come so they could have real and eternal life. And I like that they, they, they broaden the phrase out because it is meant to indicate that Jesus came for you to have life now and forever. That the wholeness the salvation for you. It's for now and forever. And so your best life in the middle of difficulty, your middle of circumstances that are are less than ideal is going to involve this idea of wholeness being restored to you. And it's not restored necessarily all at once, right? There's an incredible amount of process in being uh, made whole, in, in walking into healing, even in, into freedom. And sometimes it's not even the stuff that's going on in the life around you. Sometimes the process is internal. How many of us have struggled even with the idea of forgiveness, where we would say, I know that the Lord has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Like, that's, just, that's an internal process of trying to grow into being made whole because of that trauma that you have produced in your own life because of the decisions that you've made. And it's just one example. But Jesus has come that you would have life. And that life, he has come to seek and save the lost. That salvation that he's come to bring is a salvation that brings wholeness. Nothing missing and nothing broken. Now in Jeremiah chapter 23, we bump into the other dominant metaphor that is used in scripture to talk about what it means to have real life. And that is to be fruitful. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 3. And God is speaking to Jeremiah about what he intends to do himself, that how he is going to faithfully see this process come to completion. He says, I myself, and this is the Lord speaking, 
will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. Have you heard that phrase before? Right? Be fruitful and increase in number. Maybe you recognize this from the early chapters of Genesis. It was the first blessing that God spoke over mankind. It was God's intention all along that mankind would live in a way that was fruitful and enjoyed increase. And that's not just this idea of like have a lot of kids and have several generations or amass for yourself wealth. We have a tendency to, to, to uh, narrow it down into those types of ideas. Even so much so that I've heard it said that to be fruitful and to increase in that original way just meant that you were, it was God's desire that you had a family and you had to have kids. And if you didn't do that, then there was, you were a lesser person from that. Those, those are uh, unhelpful narrowings of the breadth of God's promises. The idea of increase, the idea of fruitfulness means that you are going to have continued and perpetual impact It's not just that you're going to enjoy the fruit of your labor or you're going to have more for yourself. The idea of multiplied impact and increase even into future generations, that the life that you're going to live, the life that God has designed for you to live, isn't just a life for today. And it's not just a life that is to influence the people who are around you, but that you would live such a significant life that what you do and the seeds that you sow today are going to come to a harvest in future generations that you would never see, that you will be an unnamed catalyst for spiritual blessing in the future of people that you will never meet. Like that, like that's crazy. But that, that's, that's God's intention. Like, you and I enjoy this. There are men and women of faith all through history who have done and set in motion things that have impacted the spiritual that we have harvested and enjoyed, and we would never know their names. We bump into some famous people from time to time, and you may be able to, to say, hey, I knew of this revivalist, or you may have heard of Billy Graham or something like that. But there's a whole lineage There's a whole family tree that gets to Billy Graham of men and women who would have been a part of shaping all all kinds of stuff. See, we, we mistakenly narrow the significance of our life to today and the importance of who you are and who God has created you to be is not just for today. It's for the future of what he would do. And even when God speaks to Jeremiah here and says, hey, I'm going to bring back those that were lost, and they're going to enjoy the faithfulness of my promises, and they're going to enjoy this fruit, this fruitful increase. He was largely speaking of people who were presently not going to experience that. Those that were brought back, it was going to be significant generation before they were returned to the place of God's promises. But God's gonna be faithful and he's gonna do that. And it's in these two things, in this idea of wholeness and this idea of fruitfulness that Jeremiah is really uh, given the strength to live his best in one of Israel's worst timelines of history. And for you and I, wholeness and fruitfulness, we can look at this as an Old Testament concept. We can, we can look at it in this context and we can narrow it to this place 
in history, but ultimately this offering of wholeness, ultimately this offering of fruitfulness is made available in Jesus. And that's why it's so exciting and so important for us to recognize that and to see the significance of the time in human history that we live. That is, as, as uh, Jeremiah is speaking of God, someday you're going to do, we are living in the days that God is doing it. We are living in the days that are after God has begun that type of work, that in Christ, the full offering of being made whole, in Christ, the full offering of living into a fruitful life, all of that is available to you and I now because of the work of Jesus. And it can't be experienced any where else. Abundant life, living your best life when life is not at its best, you will not find that outside of Jesus. You can look, you can try, you can hashtag all you want, but Jesus has a bigger plan for your life, moms, than hiding in the closet eating ice cream just trying to catch your breath. Dad's puttering around in the garage just trying to like get away from the cacophony of noise in your home. God, like Jesus' plan for your life is bigger than that, bigger than you to just drown in life circumstances and then just try to find one happy moment for yourself to catch your breath and to keep living a life of suffering. That is not his intention for you. It's not his intention for us. His intention is for us to walk whole and to be fruitful in spite of whatever we're enduring, in spite of whatever difficulty we are facing, because we are in Christ able to do that. And in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and this is so important, the life. You will not find your best life outside of the source of life. Jesus is going to be where you find that. He is the only source, abundant life, full life, life everlasting. It's only available in the source of life, and he is that. In John chapter 15, verse 5, he says this. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, look at this, you will what? Bear much fruit. It's just a fancy way of saying that you will be fruitful. Wholeness, fruitfulness are both tied the presence of Jesus in our lives. And here's where they differ a little bit, and this is important for us to recognize. Wholeness is the work of Christ in you. You you can't make yourself whole. You can't heal yourself. You can't save yourself. It's the whole reason why we need a Savior, right? It's the work of Christ in you. He does that. And we position ourselves to receive that by very simply being open to that. We acknowledge our need, we confess our need, and we receive his grace. Wholeness is the work of Christ in us. He saves us, he restores us, he heals us, he makes us whole. It's the result of God being at work in our lives. Fruitfulness is the result of Christ at work through us. If you remain in me, if you hold fast to me, if you stay connected to me, you will bear much fruit. It comes out of John chapter 15. You can read this whole chapter on its own, but he uses the picture of the metaphor of a vine and branches. And a branch that's disconnected from the vine, there's no life in it, and so there's no fruit produced. But a vine that stays connected or a, a branch that stays connected to the vine, life is flowing through it, and fruit is naturally the result of it. Christ at work in us produces fruitfulness. 
Christ at work through us produces fruitfulness. Christ at work in us produces wholeness. And the role that we have when it comes to this is simplified in that statement of remain or abide. It means just stay connected. And there's a portion of that that connects with the idea of obedience. Okay, so we, can get, we get to a place where there is decision for you and I to make. We do have to take steps. We're not made whole just because we're broken. We're made whole because we take steps towards the one who makes us whole. And we begin to participate with him. We're not fruitful because we're just like passive. But we take steps to engage and participate with the Spirit of God in a way that produces fruitfulness in our lives. There, there is a step of engagement for you and I in remaining and in obedience. In John chapter 14, 15, 16, where we're kind of unpacking Jesus' statements here, he says over and over and over, obey my commands, obey my commands, obey my commands. In fact, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So there's a role of obedience, but it's important for us to put it at the very, very end because most of us try to be really good. And if I'm good enough, then I'll be made whole as if you have to work yourself towards that. Or if I'm good enough, I can become more fruitful. Obedience is at the very end. It's at the very end. Jesus is making me whole and I'm holding close to him and obedience helps me be disciplined in what I would say is abiding. And here's what abiding most often looks like making room for God to move. Remaining in Jesus, okay, or abiding in the vine, you're making room in your life for the Lord to move. See, there's spiritual disciplines, and we talk about these a lot, right? We know that we need to pray. Would we all say that, yeah, that's important? Would we all say that we know how to do that? Hmm, maybe. Would we all say that we do that often? Hmm, maybe. Right, like there's degrees of application in our life versus what we would say cognitively is true. We know that prayer is important. Why? Okay? Fasting is important. Why? Worship. Reading Scripture. Gathering together as the church. Being the hands and feet of Jesus. Fill in all of those kind of those expressions of spirituality why are they important? We almost always go back to, well, you've got to be obedient and you've got to do it right. We get back to this idea that really the whole point is to not be naughty, to not be, quote unquote, the bad kid. Here's what all of those things do in one form or another. They pause your life and you make room for God to move in you. That's it. Pray when you don't know what to say. In fact, in that time of prayer, just sit and be quiet. and Leave space for the Lord to move. Spend time in Scripture when you don't really know where, and you're not really interested in that story, or you don't really understand all of it. Why? Because it leaves space for God to move. There's no pop quiz at the end. You don't have to just fill in the bubble C and hope you get a passing grade. You leave space for God to move. Worship when you don't feel like it. Worship when your voice stinks. Worship when you're off key. Why? There's a degree of humility involved in that that is also helpful, but it leaves space for God to move. Remaining in Jesus, 
remaining in the vine, just holding on to him. These places of obedience or spiritual discipline, we just, we're hitting pause long enough to leave space in our lives for God to speak and for God to move. Because he's the only one who can bring wholeness. And his work in us will produce fruitfulness. And so living your best life, it's going to include wholeness. It's going to include fruitfulness. The center of that's going to be Jesus. And if you would pause long enough to allow space for him to move, you'll begin to see that and experience that more frequently. Church family, if you would stand. Worship team, if you would come forward. We'll go ahead and close at this point. As the worship team goes forward, I'm going to ask you to just uh, do something with me for a second. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Just as an exercise of closing out uh, distractions, nothing more than that. And I want you to consider that question that we began with. What does living your best life look like? What does it look like to be winning in your life? I want you to think maybe about your home. What would it look like for you to be living your best life in the way that you interact with your children? What would it look like for you to be living your best life as you interacted with your spouse? What would it look like for you to be living your best life, for your life to be whole and fruitful in your place of employment? What, it would, what, what would your life look like if you were living it at its best in the midst of incredible loss and grief and brokenness? What does it look like? Lord, some of us, when we think about that, have ready answers. Because we're dealing with hurt and trauma, we're dealing with loss and grief. Lord, we're dealing with brokenness. We can readily see it and our need for wholeness. We feel barren. There's, there's been a lack of fruitfulness in our lives. For some of us, the, the answer is really like ready. It's almost easier to see that than the hope that we would have that it would ever be different. Lord, would you open our eyes to the wholeness that is ours in Christ. Lord, that you would open our eyes to the next step that we would take that would remain in you. The next step of obedience, the next step of abiding, the next step of just pausing our lives and leaving room for you to move. Lord, draw us back to you. Church friends, if you truly desire to live your best life, even when life is not at its best, you've got to remain in Jesus or maybe you need to return to him he's the only source of life he's the one who brings fruitfulness remain abide hold fast push pause leave enough space for him to begin to move so Jesus we do that this morning we make room even in this moment we would say move in my life Move in this issue, move in this circumstance, move in this challenge, move in this disappointment. Correct, direct, guide, heal, rescue, save, 
Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. We echo Jeremiah's words. I ask that you would do that in us. And Lord, in these next days, as we have opportunity to pray together, to contend together for wholeness and fruitfulness, let us do that knowing that in Christ that is already secured, that we find our wholeness when Christ is at work in us, and we enjoy fruitfulness when we allow Christ to work through us. Help us to be willing vessels. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Action steps for this week. I'm just going to really just invite you to participate with us as we pray and contend for the things of God. So commit for the next 21 days to pray. Maybe you are going to begin learning what that looks like. Maybe you've got a disciplined regiment. You're going to add this to that. But as you do, pray for your person. Pray for families. Pray for your community. Pray for our nation. Pray for our world. There's going to be a template and a way for you to participate with that. But as you pray... Contend for wholeness and fruitfulness, for Christ to be at work in you and for Jesus to be at work through you.